0: Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 241, recorded on May 17th, 2022. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes, from a possibly noisy remote location. Let's do the news. We start this week with what Google is calling
1: Assured Open Source. It's a program they're launching that curates open source software using Google's own in-house testing tooling.
0: In the announcement, Google states that, quote, the assured open source software service will extend the benefits of Google's extensive software auditing experience to cloud customers. They say all open source packages made available through the service, Google Cloud, will also be the ones that are used internally by Google. So what it seems they're announcing here is the open source packages you probably already know and use when you're on Google Cloud will now be checked against their own set of internal tools as a type of a service for Google Cloud customers.
1: You can find the list of the so far 550 major open source libraries that Google's testing on GitHub and as a link in our show notes. And of course, you can just go look these up and then download them independently of Google. Honestly, it's a, it's a list of really good names and they're open source packages, right? Go get them. What Google's adding with Assured open source is specific audited versions that have been run through their test suite and then distributed directly through Google Cloud. And something else we noticed from the company recently was the formation of an open-source maintenance crew, a team that would aim to work upstream with maintainers of popular libraries
0: directly in an effort to improve security. Now that I like to see, the open source maintainers crew, huh? Okay, all right. Going upstream, I'm all about that. I think that's really great to see. So the the uh, curated service here, the Assured Open Source Program, that's just an early testing right now, but it should be available for more Google Cloud customers in quarter three of 2022. So far, the biggest pushback I've seen online is that some people say that Google is basically monetizing security issues in open source, instead of fixing the root of the problem, at least for everything we have announced today. I don't know, Wes. There is only so much one company can do. What do you think of that criticism? I
1: I do get it. I think um, the sort of distribution to Google Cloud customers, uh, in some senses, rubs me the wrong way. Makes me feel a little uncomfortable. But I don't know. It's a mixed bag. On one hand, they're kind of doing the, the right thing in that, you know, the library, the tooling, the testing tooling, that's all open source. They've got a repo. Go pull it down. They've got docs to help you run it on your own infrastructure. But that's kind of as far as it goes, and you have to go do that work yourself unless you're a Google paying customer. And that's fine for you know, some of the other big players, but it means you know if, if you or I wanted to do it, we'd have to go pull all the stuff, kind of get scripts up and going. We'd have to set up the infrastructure to run it and then actually run it and pick versions and then do the publishing ourselves. So that's that's kind of the offering they're doing. Whether or not you think that's a fair value add on top, I could see either way. But I do think you're right. You know, you got to balance whatever grossness you see there with their uh, efforts to do this testing, to share that tooling, um, their efforts with Project Zero. And then actually just recently, Google, along with the Open Source Security Foundation and the Linux Foundation, met up at the White House to discuss open-source security. And it seems there was an attempt to kind of expand that, bring in other groups, folks like Amazon, Intel, Microsoft, and get them all together, shell out some money,
0: and focus on improving this mess. That seems good, right? I mean, it seems like this is what we've been asking for, is pay attention to this stuff. This stuff is infrastructure. You should treat it as infrastructure like you do roads and bridges. So yeah, I think it's good. I I, I just, I have a very mixed reaction myself. It seems like something limited to Google Cloud is only going to have so much reach. It's only going to have so much impact. And I think I've just been looking at this problem of underfunding free software and underfunding key libraries for so long. It feels like for over 20 years. And I'm just kind of losing faith that any of these companies are going to solve this. I mean, maybe that's changing with this. It definitely seems like they're getting more serious But it just still seems like it's always going to be limited in reach, limited in impact. And I hate to say it, but probably also only survives as long as there's an advocate at Google that's pushing for this program. You know, I think about Linux. That was a community solution to a problem that the commercial interests at the time just were not willing to solve. And I feel like now we need a community-driven solution to address free software funding, at least an effort that improves the baseline, maybe we're not going to give full-time wages to all these developers. But if we could improve the baseline of their lives, make it worth their time, incentivize them to keep working on it, that would be tremendous. And we have the technology, we just seem to not have the will. Well, it looks like the Software Freedom
1: Conservancy might just be about to land a major win for the right to repair, and our beloved GPL.
0: Yes, after attempting to work with Vizio, the TV manufacturer, since 2018 to get them to comply with the GPL because of some software that they ship on some of their televisions, the SFC decided to file a lawsuit in the state of California back in October of 2021. So they worked with them since 2018, The lines of communication kind of go dead in 2020. They file a lawsuit in October of 2021. And then in December of 2021, Vizio tries to get this lawsuit kicked out of California.
1: Yeah, Vizio basically argued that, no, no, these claims should be superseded by copyright and therefore handled in a federal copyright case, not in the jurisdiction of California. But what happened this week is a ruling stating that the claim from the Software Freedom Conservancy succeeded in the, quote, extra element test, which holds that state law claims are not preempted by copyright if the state law claim at issue has one or more qualitatively different elements from a normal copyright claim. And that's important in particular for this case because the qualitatively different
0: elements here are those extra rights granted to us by the GPL. Yes, and this also would be historic, not only because of that, but because it's the customer suing Visio, not a copyright holder. That means you and me, users of GPL software, could have a win here. Uh, the SFC notes the ruling is a watershed moment in the history of copyleft licensing. They say this ruling shows that the GPL agreements function as both copyright license and as a contractual agreement. Now, that's just great on its
1: own, right? Especially for us free software lovers. But we're also folks who buy electronic devices and televisions and want to maintain them. And this is also good news for the right to repair. Quote, This claim is central to the right to software repair, as it allows users to exercise the right to copy, share, modify, and reinstall the software on the devices that they receive. And you could totally see how, you know, this ruling and actually enforcing compliance with the GPL might just help some efforts down the line to help maintain some of these no longer supported televisions or other electronic
0: systems. Absolutely. I just really think that itself could be some great precedent. But uh, I think you also, when when you just read through the details here, you get the sense that the Conservancy has played this really savvy. Like, they've been really smart in how they have maneuvered, and this could actually be a big win for all of us. And this is great to see because I think anybody listening to this can just see the obviousness of all of this on its face. Giant company used free software for a fancy feature they wanted because it would sell more televisions, but they don't want to follow the rules of the free code. That's just not how it works. If they don't want to follow the rules, then they should have written the code from scratch themselves. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to take advantage of something that somebody else already created, and now they have to respect the rules of that license. And that's how it should be. We don't have final decisions here, but we are in the right direction now.
1: Sometimes life on the rolling edge can have a few paper cuts. That definitely happened to Arch users recently with a little tricky transition with Pipewire. Now, a little background. Arch has been shipping Pipewire for years now, but there are a few complications. Much like in the world of Jack, the actual Pipewire daemon, it doesn't do any of the connection logic to route all of your audio. It does the parts where it's interfacing with the lower-level kernel and user space components and talking to your devices, but you need to tell it where everything should go. The burden of doing that, well, that's on a component called the Session Manager. And right now, there's kind of two. There's the default sort of baseline testing. Here's an example of how to make a session manager, which is called Pipewire Media Session. And then there's the new Wire Plumber, which is the fancier, fully featured, scriptable solution that will be the future. Arch had just started attempting rolling out Wire Plumber, but ran into a few problems.
0: Yeah, started is right. They did have to roll it back. Um, It seems like it's kind of one of those snags you do hit in the Arch land. So we want to let you guys know about it this week. If you had a situation where you decided you still wanted to use Pulse Audio or also on your Arch system, and then Wire Plumber comes down as an update, that was causing you some problems sometimes because it would grab all of the audio input for Pipewire because it would just assume that you were going full Pipewire on that box.
1: Yeah, that's kind of the tricky bit here. You know, Arch, Arch isn't Fedora. There's no one decreeing that, you know, we're going to target Wayland, we're going to switch everything to Pipewire. Arch is a lot more all the cart, right? you got to assemble your system yourself. And while well, audio nerds like you and I, Chris, well, we'd been jumping on full Pipewire systems basically the, the minute it wouldn't crash our laptops But some folks don't really have a problem with pulse audio, or you know they've got devices that they have set up, and they don't really need to switch everything out, or they just want PipeWire to work with the you know fancy screen recording under Wayland and and all the nice new stuff that PipeWire has. So I get it, and and that's just the thing about Arch, right? You are on the bleeding edge, and you're kind of sort of building your own distro, at least a little bit. Sometimes that means a little bit of pain. Don't worry though, the fix if you did run into it. It's pretty darn easy. Details and commands in the show notes.
0: Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit on a new account, and you go there to support the show. Linode is really the Linux Geeks cloud. You know what I mean? When you're working with a company and you can tell they really get Linux, that's Linode. And they've got 11 data centers around the world. They've been working hard at making this the best way to run applications on Linux for nearly 19 years. They've built it up from the ground up based on customer requests. And it really shows because they have the best support in the business. Super fast systems. They've just added NVMe storage and a great interface. Plus they have a bunch of backend features that I personally just use the crap out of. Things like S3 compatible object storage, a powerful DNS manager, DDoS protection, cloud firewalls, super fast networking. They have infrastructure management support, a really clean, useful API. I mean, that stuff's just, you know, top of my list that I use all the time on a daily. But of course, I've been using them for like two and a half years. What really got me, though, was the pricing and the performance. That's what got me to stick around. They're 30 to 50% cheaper than the hyperscalers that want to lock you into their platforms. And they're just screaming fast. They're just absolutely screaming fast. We run all of our stuff for the last couple of years up there. Go try it out and get $100 while you support the show. Go build a website. Go run something for the back end on your company. I don't know. Maybe go click something. One boom. Click. Deploy. And you're done. You got like NextCloud going. (laughs) That's how great it is. It's so nice. And you get $100 to play around and try it out. Just go to linode.com slash LAN. Get $100 for 60 days on a new account. And you support the show. Linode.com slash LAN. Linux.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for also sponsoring this here podcast. If you're sick of overpaying for cell service, if you're ready to save a little bit of money, go to Ting and see how much you could save and take 25 bucks off of your device or get $25 in credit. Ting is a mobile virtual network operator that rides on top of the big nationwide carriers with LTE and 5G, but you're interfacing with Ting who focuses on customer support, who focuses on simple plans that are easy to understand and easy to afford. And Ting Mobile was recently named the number one carrier by Consumer Reports in 2021. Ting's plans are simple and straightforward, and there's no contract. There's really no better way to do mobile. That's why I've been a customer since 2013. Ting plans start at unbelievable prices, and they work great for the individual. They have plans that work great for your family. If it's time to start giving your kids So mobile service, (laughs) that's the situation I'm looking at. Of course I'm going to use Ting. There's just no better way to save money every single month for me right now than just taking some of these low-hanging fruits, like my overly expensive monthlies, and replacing them with something that's much better priced. And in the case of Ting, give me the same service. It's so simple to switch to Ting. Pretty much any phone's going to work. So just start by going to linux.ting.com. Check your phone, create an account, and pick the plan that's right for you. You'll save 25 bucks when you go to linux.ting.com.
1: Listeners of this show know we've been following BcashFS for years now, always keeping an eye on where things are at. Well, this week, LWN did a fantastic job at summarizing a recent progress report from the Linux Storage Summit at the start of May.
0: This storage summit sounds like it must have been quite the party. And Kent Overstreet, the project creator of BCashFS, gave a talk where we got all kinds of updates. Some of the most details we've gotten in a while. And Overstreet answered some questions from his fellow developers. One of the first ones that stood out to us was, what's the use case for BcacheFS exactly?
1: You know, we've already got a bunch of file systems. I really liked Kent's answer, though. Quote, the answer is everything. What does that mean? Well, his long-standing goal has been to be, quote, reliable and robust enough to be the XFS replacement. I mean, think about that. This is a file system with the same snapshot interface as ButterFS, with sub-volumes, with all kinds of fancy features, but that's also being designed at the same time to be as robust and reliable as one of our old-time favorites.
0: I really want this to happen. Yeah, really. I love XFS, used it forever, and uh, I have a lot of hopes that I'll use BcacheFS in a lot of those places. Like on a Raspberry Pi, this could be killer to have something like this. And BcacheFS has had a lot of hard work going into it recently. The allocator was recently rewritten. Uh, It's been tested on 50 terabyte storage arrays. There is all kinds of lessons that are getting at least considered from ButterFS, which I think is good to see. Uh, Overstreet said that the to-do list is always expanding, uh, but the, quote, really big pain points have mostly been dealt with at this point.
1: Another interesting question that popped up was, is BcashFS being used in production anywhere? And Overstreet did note that he definitely didn't have an exhaustive list of which companies and mostly found out about it with people asked for help or questions on the mailing list. But he did point out that several video production companies have been using it, because they needed to deal with multiple 4K streams for editing multi-camera setups, say. They'd actually been using it for several years now, which is kind of saying something, considering Bcache FS has been developed on a lot and has changed significantly over the last few years. Apparently, Bcache FS was chosen because it had better performance, but similar features as ButterFS, and at the time had some
0: unique features that other file systems couldn't quite match. So then, the other question was: Is well, like, what's the what's holding back B-cache FS? Why isn't it upstream yet? And Overstreet said that he is concerned about the amount of bug reports that will come in once it's just in the hands of more users. So he wants to make sure that there's some bigger development projects that just get taken care of, get handled before it gets to that point. Um, he did point, though, to the documentation coming along pretty well in the principles of operation document, at least as a starting point for new users, which might be you out there. <laughs> probably a lot of us for FS. Uh So the principles of operations document will be linked in the show notes. It's up to 25 pages at this point, and it's organized by features, and uh, it's probably going to get even more details, get a little more fleshed out soon, too. One developer wondered. When might the Rust rewrite be happening exactly? And, okay, I
1: kind of assumed that might have just been a joke question. But, no. Overstreet said that there's actually already some user space Rust code in the repo. And as soon as Rust support lands in the kernel, he's ready to use it. Saying, quote, So many little quality of life improvements in Rust. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it sounds like some other people chimed up and said, you know, there's a few of us waiting for that Rust support in the kernel. And then Overstreet suggested that, well, if you're waiting for Rust support, maybe make some noise about that. Let the kernel devs know there's some of us out here that really want to see this.
1: <laughs> yeah, it almost seems that um, maybe Rust support and PKFS are in something of a, a little race to see which lands in the kernel first. And, of course, that was one of the big questions many folks were asking. When is mainlining happening? What's your timetable, Kent? Well, the answer? He'd like to see it happen within the next six months.
0: And based on recent bug reports, he actually thinks that is a realistic goal. You know, six months? I could get behind that. I'd love to see where this goes. Of course, we'll keep an eye on this and everything else going on in the world of Linux and free software. So be sure you get every episode by going to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get the new episodes.
1: And the linuxactionnews.com slash contact to ask us all the BcashFS questions you want.
0: Don't miss episode 458 of Linux Unplugged. We've got some more details on the NVIDIA GPU drivers that are now free software and an interview with one of the co-founders of TailScale. Very enlightening. As for this show, well, we'll be back next week with the latest Linux
1: and open source news.
0: Thanks for joining us.
1: And that's all the news
0: for this week.